0: Uh, like I said, my name is Reese, and I have the privilege of serving as an elder here. We have been going through Proverbs, but we're taking a little bit of a break the next two weeks, um, and we got one or two left of Proverbs, and then we're going to get into Hebrews. But these next two weeks, we're going through the Gospel of John. We're going to do John chapter 1 today. There is this incredible claim by Jesus that I feel often gets overlooked, or at least it doesn't give, get the attention that I think it should get. When Jesus was having a argument, one of these tussles with religious opponents, he said this in John five forty six. He said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote about me. Now, Moses is believed to have written the first five books of the Old Testament, and it is at least a 1,000 years before Jesus, likely more. So how could Jesus say this? What does he mean by this? Because his name is nowhere in there. Well, Jesus is there, but we have to look a little bit carefully to find him. And then also, when Jesus' original followers were telling their friends about Jesus, kind of introducing them to Jesus... We get a sneak peek into what they said in John 1.45. Philip goes to his friend Nathaniel and he says this, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth the son of Joseph. So when Nathaniel hears these words, he's a little taken aback, almost like he doesn't believe it. But his friend says to him, come and see. He hears this incredible claim that Jesus is the one the Old Testament has been written about, and his friend doesn't say, well, just believe it. He says, come and see. Come, let's investigate to see if this is true or not. And so this is what I want to invite you to this morning. I want to invite you to come and see what the Old Testament is really about. I want to help expand your view of reading the Gospel of John And by extension, reading all of the Bible. And ultimately, I want you this morning to come see Jesus for who he is and understand his love for you greater than you did when you first came in. So if you would, bow your heads with me and let's pray together. God, thank you for your time or your word this morning and our time in it together. Thank you for the Gospel of John that is written For our benefit, that we may see and know you, that we can investigate, we can ask questions, we can learn. Help soften our hearts this morning, no matter what burdens we came into this room carrying, what worries or stresses are on our minds right now. Help us to let those go, to see that life has one purpose. It has one meaning. It is greater than us ourselves and our own little worlds. Help us to gaze as you see the world, as you see us through Jesus. Help us to have soft hearts to your word this morning in John 1 and expand our love for the scriptures. We pray this all in your name. Amen. So the author of John... He took great energy and care to clearly and convincingly show how Jesus is foreshadowed in the Old Testament and also directly spoken of in the Old Testament. And if you look on your outline, you can see there are three points that we're going to cover this morning in John 1. We are going to find Jesus. We're going to find his identity, his mission, and his way. And as we work through John chapter 1, just to put it on your radar... I'm going to cover six Old Testament references, two per major point. And you can't talk about the Gospel of John without talking about his intended purpose, which he says in the book, one of the clearest statements in any scriptural passage. At the end of the book, John 20, verse 31, he says, This was written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote this. So no matter where you're at in your faith journey this morning, John wants you to have life by reading these words about Jesus. So let's read chapter 1, 1 through 18, and it should be on the screen. So I'm going to be reading the New International Version from 1984 because that's the one I know best, and this is the Bible that has stuck with me, even though it's out of print. So I have it up on the screen for you. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Now I mentioned we're going to be be doing two Old Testament references per point here. And our first one is at the very beginning. In the first three words of the Gospel of John. He says, in the beginning. Now, you probably have heard that before. Those are the first three words that start the entire Bible. The creation of the world, creation of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So why would John start his story about Jesus this way? And to add to that, I don't know if you noticed when I was reading this, he doesn't actually say Jesus' name till the very end. He calls him the Word. And so in this story about Jesus and his life, why would he start this way? I mean, he could have said, this is a story about Jesus and just gotten right into it. But he doesn't do that. You know, imagine a movie starting that way. This is a movie about a guy who gets a miraculous superpower. He starts to fight a bad guy. You think he's dead, but he's not, and he takes out the bad guy. it it, it wouldn't be that interesting. See, John wants us to see the beauty, the grandeur of what story that he is telling, and he wants to draw you in. In these three words at the start of this gospel, I would say are one of the most boldest statements in all of storytelling in the history of the world. Because what he's saying is that what I'm about to tell you is on the level of the creation of the universe itself. This is not a mere story. This is what life and reality are all about. And so we better pay attention in those first three words. He goes on in the first three verses to say that this word was there at the beginning. The word was God himself. And in verse three, all things were made through this word. And he's talking about Jesus. So Jesus was God at the very beginning. And so what John is saying is he's getting our attention and saying this is going to be a story about the creator God and what he is doing in this new creation. And in the first sentence sen- sentences, we see part of Jesus' identity, that he is God. And again, that this story is on the level of the creation of the universe. But in this section, that's not all that we find out about Jesus' identity. Look down at verse 14. The part that I read says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And, uh, at first you may not see that that's a Old Testament reference, uh, but it is a big one. So listen to, uh, oh wait, the, the English translation here helps us because it tries to contemporize it. But the Greek is the word tabernacled. So he tabernacled with us. Listen to what a Bible, Bible commentary says about this. He says, the author is alluding to the Old Testament tabernacle where the Shekinah, the visible glory of God's presence, resided. The author is suggesting that this glory can now be seen in Jesus. If you know some of the story of the Old Testament, God's people were in slavery and they were released from captivity uh, out of Egypt, traveled through the Sinai Peninsula. God commanded Moses to make a tabernacle, think of like a big ornate tent, where the ark was, was housed, the Ten Commandments in it, and some other things. That's where the sacrifices would be made. And it was a special place. So you don't have to turn there, but just listen to uh, Exodus 40, verse 33, 34, and a little bit onward. It says, Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar. He put up a curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The next verse says the same thing. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle And then it says, the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. So they saw it. It was there. But even though it was a visible and tangible presence, they couldn't go near it. It says in verse 35 of Exodus 40 that Moses couldn't even go go there. And he was pretty special. So when John says that the word became flesh, this God creator came to be like us. This God became approachable. He became relatable. He is someone like us who feels hurts, joys, pains. He gets abandoned by his friends. He gets misunderstood. He experiences family strife and he gets what he doesn't deserve a lot of injustice at the end of John 14, verse 14 he says we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only and that's a little that one and only phrase is a little bit hard for translators to to translate into english but basically it means he's the unique one he's so unique but he's human And in him we see his glory coming from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so with these two references only, we have a great picture of Jesus' identity. He is God, the creator of the universe, and he's human like us. And this glory of God is approachable. Now we don't know how many revisions, I'd like to know this, how many revisions did John go through to, before he came up with this prologue because it's masterfully done. And it's clear that he was thinking about opportunities to draw people in and show them Jesus at the same time in all of his fullness. And in just 18 verses, he's able to do that. It's a great evangelistic tool uh, even for us, today. We can learn much from it. Uh, so here's a question. How can you help uh, get into spiritual conversations with people? How can you get them intrigued? How can you talk about spiritual things to, to share your own faith, your own hope in Jesus? Well, I was thinking about this very question a couple of weeks ago. Our family was privileged to go on a cross-country trip in an RV, and we were parked in the middle of nowhere, Utah. Uh, really nowhere. Uh, but there were some other people there And this guy knocks on our door and he says, I was like, hey, what's up? And he's like, yeah, can I buy buy some water from you? I'm like, well, why do you, why would you want to buy water from us? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm renting this RV and the water pump broke and, uh, we just, we won't have any water. I said, well, I've got all my tools here, so let's go see if we can fix it. So we went over there and as I'm working on his water pump, I'm thinking, how can I, like, how can we get into spiritual conversation? Because I'm probably never going to see this guy again in my life. So I'm looking for opportunities, and uh, one of my, uh, I have a couple of, like, go-to phrases that you can use. And one of them is, since I became a Christian in college, I, I say something like, yeah, you know, and that, it was just totally life-changing event in college. And what do people say? <laughs> what is it? So that's what this guy did. And so I get to share my story. I get to share the gospel. And then I can easily ask, and this is my second one, do you have any religious background? And people usually open up and like to talk about it. So uh, we got it fixed, and he was very excited. And um, I'll keep praying, praying for this guy. But consider how you can engage in conversation with people around you And and get curious, get them curious about who Jesus is and talking about spiritual things. You might have to think about it ahead of time. You can use those phrases uh, like I had mentioned or come up with your own. But understand all of that, underneath all of that is the most important thing, is that you press through any perceived awkwardness. So even if you don't got it right, just get it out there. Another application is when you're reading the Bible or reading the gospel of John here to ask, why is this here? You know, why does he start within the beginning? Why does he say this or that? As I read through the Gospel, chapter one here, you're going to notice that there's a, a repeated phrase, which I'm actually going to talk about next week, but to give you just something to think about. He says, the next day, the next day this happened, the next day this happened, the next day this happened. Well, why is that? Is that even relevant to the point he's trying to make? So John is masterfully putting all of this together for your benefit. So I encourage you to read, to ask questions, again, to come and see Jesus in the scriptures. So we've seen Jesus's identity here, primarily as God and man. Let's talk about his mission. And we're going to read John verse 19 to 27. Now this was john's testimony when the jews of jerusalem sent priests and levites to ask him who he was He did not fail to confess but confessed freely. I'm not the christ Then they asked him. Well, then who are you? Are you elijah? He said i'm not Are you the prophet? He answered no Finally, they say well, who are you give us an answer to take back to those who sent us who what do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some of the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So John the Baptist is a guy who's introduced here as the story begins, and he's baptizing people, and religious leaders are coming to find out, like, what's up with this guy? And so they ask him, are you Elijah? And he says, no, and maybe you've heard of Elijah before, he's in the Old Testament, and in 2 Kings he was brought up to heaven, and so there was like that question still in the air, is he going to come back? So that's a legitimate question they're asking him. And then they also ask him, are you the prophet? In most English translations, if you look at your Bible, there's a capital P there. That's because it's a special prophet that they're referencing. And understanding who they're asking about is totally fascinating. And in order to know who this is, we have to start in the Old Testament with something Moses wrote. And if you want to turn there, turn to Exodus 20. We have to start to understand who this prophet is by looking at the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 is one of the sections of the Ten Commandments. There's another in Deuteronomy 5, as Moses is doing some summary work in Deuteronomy. But in chapter 20 of Exodus, verse 18, so you can look on your Bible, you can see the Ten Commandments. All Israel's there. The mountain's there. Moses is on the mountain. There's smoke. And let me just read it. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we'll die. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. I wish we could linger here a long time, but there's really one point that I want to point out is that what these people see is that the, the, And what the Ten Commandments represent is that God has shown them their sin. And they know it. And what are they asking for? They're asking for Moses to get in the way. We don't want to talk to God. Moses, we want you to be in between us and God. We want you, Moses, to be the intermediary. Okay, keep that in mind. Now flip over to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy is uh, written by Moses and it is kind of at the end of his life in some summary. So it's like final thoughts, commands, uh, encouragements to the people of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 18, it talks about the prophet starting in verse 15. And if you don't want to turn there, just listen. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him for this is what you asked for uh, asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God nor see this great fire any more or we will die the Lord said to me what they say is good i will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers i will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything i command him If anyone does not listen to my words, that the prophet speaks in my name, I will call him to account. So what Moses is telling the people here is that there is going to come this prophet who's like me in the future, and he will be like Moses in the sense that he leads people out of slavery. He will be like Moses in that he's human, but he has an intimacy with God, and he's like Moses that he will be an intermediary between man and God. And why is this prophet going to be raised up? This is what I find so fascinating and crazy. In verse 16, it says, <laughs> Moses is ready to the people, the reason this prophet is coming is because you asked for it. The Ten Commandments were given, and you guys said we needed into intermediary. We cannot be close to God because of our sin. And in verse 17, the Lord says to Moses, what they're asking for is good. He will raise up a prophet. Can you guys guess who that is? See, Jesus is the one who was requested at the Ten Commandments and fulfilled when he came. That is who capital P prophet is talking about. And if you don't believe me, read Acts 3, because Peter says the same thing. So there is a clear connection between Jesus and the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, again, show us our own sin. They show us that we are not right with God that we need help. We need an intermediary. I remember when my uh, college roommate first asked me, do you want to believe in Jesus? And, well, he asked it several times, but I remember the, the last time. And I said, yes, because I knew that I was not right with God. And I had felt like there was this hammer over my head about to drop, and I had no way out except one. And he showed me Jesus, and I believe that Jesus was my way out. He was that intermediary. And life has not been the same since. But even though that is the most best, goodest news you would ever hear, you will not come to that unless you know the bad news, that you need him. And so I'd encourage you, read the Ten Commandments. Even read them as a question, and it'll show your own failings, your own sin, right? Have you ever lied? Have you ever coveted anything? Have you ever stolen anything or taken anything that wasn't yours? It's easy to see our sin when we stop and think about it. Later, we're going to be celebrating communion over here, and uh, part of that whole thing is remembering what Jesus did for us. So as we're, uh, you know, the musicians are playing, and as you're in your seat, uh, I'd encourage you just consider your own heart and where you're at with God and look to Jesus because he's the one that takes away sin, so follow him. So Jesus' mission was to be this prophet that Moses wrote about. The second one that I want to focus on under his mission is from John's own lips here. He quotes, Isaiah 40 verse 20, verse 23. Oh, it's Isaiah 43, but it's verse 23 in chapter 1. So he's quoting Isaiah when these people ask him, like, who, you know, who are you? Like, what's up with you? And just to summarize, Isaiah is the second half is talking about this servant who's going to come, who's going to save Israel. He's going to die for their sins so that they can be free. And this, this introduction to who this person is happens in, in chapter 40 with the forerunner who says, I'm coming to lay the groundwork for this suffering servant. And so John the Baptist is saying, I'm that guy. And so the people listening would know the context And know what he's bringing in just by this one verse. That he is introducing who this person is, this suffering servant. And perhaps the most uh, uh, clearest testimony about Jesus in the Old Testament is Isaiah 53. And if you haven't read it, please read it. I'm going to read a couple verses. But what John is trying to get his audience to realize is that this is bringing in a whole lot of context with this one verse. So again, if 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 I were to say, because I've used this illustration before, but uh, if I said, you know, four score and seven years ago, or one small step for man, or for the kids, Mario! Right? That's a one-word one. You know what I'm talking about. You know what it means. You know all the emotion. You know all the things behind it. And so when John quotes Isaiah 40. He's bringing in all of the suffering servant into context. And so just let me read a few verses. Maybe you even want to close your eyes to listen to this because it's so amazing. This was written 700 years before Jesus. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. It says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, John the Baptist is clear, and John the author, who's one of the disciples of Jesus, is clear that John was the forerunner for this promised one who will give his life As his mission to save his people. And John the Baptist says, this guy is so special, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. So Jesus' mission was to come as the one who could be the true intermediary, who's better than Moses, and to suffer for his people. Our final point, finding his way. We're going to read verse 29, 30, and 35. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And then skip down to verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. This phrase, the Lamb of God, is nowhere else in the Bible. John uses it twice, and he's taking two Old Testament motifs and ramming them together. So there's God, obviously, and there's the Lamb, which represents the sacrificial system. And there are so many references to sacrifices in the Old Testament that we don't have time to to look them up. But one that I wanted to put on your radar that happens early on, written by Moses, is genesis 22 listen to this abraham and isaac abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went together isaac spoke up and said to his father father yes my son the fire and wood are here but where's the lamb for the burnt offering now the tension in the story is that god told abraham to sacrifice his son but his son didn't know that so he's like where's the where's the lamb The angel of God prevents him from doing it. He was testing Abraham, but Abraham said to his son, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, and they went on together. And then later on it says, Abraham looked up, and there was a ram caught by its thorns in the thicket. He went over, took the ram, and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. See, substitution has been at the heart of sacrifice from the very beginning. And this is Jesus' way. The pathway to forgiveness is through substitution. Like I mentioned, we're going to be doing Hebrews in a little bit here. Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament that we read about or that you read about, What they're doing is pointing us ahead to the true sacrifice that could really take away sin. And that's what Jesus did. So John has it right in verse 29. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His way is a way of substitution. Look down. We're going to read verse 45 to the end of the chapter for our last Old Testament reference. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked, Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here's a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. How do you know me? Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall shall see greater things than that. Then he added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So Nathaniel here meets Jesus and Jesus displays this supernatural knowledge, gets his attention. He He knew what he was doing under the fig tree. We don't know, but it gets his attention. And he calls Jesus the King of Israel and the Son of God. And Jesus says, you'll see greater things than that. And then he adds in verse 51, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What does that mean? Like, how is that, like, even better than his supernatural knowledge? Well, again, the theme, something that Moses wrote about. In Genesis 28, uh, one of the fathers, Jacob, left his home to escape his brother's wrath and anger. And in Genesis twenty-eight twelve, it says this. Just listen. It says, he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels, angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So he sees a connection between heaven and earth and God is at the top speaking down. And so in verse 51 here, Jesus is referencing that Genesis 28 story and he basically says the same thing, but he makes one change. Instead of the staircase, instead of the ladder, there's a person. And Jesus said to Nathaniel, you'll you'll see greater things. And Jesus says, that greater thing is you're going to see me as the way between earth and heaven. So he's talking about his death and resurrection and opening up this pathway between man and God. He is the only one that can do that. So we've looked at six different Old Testament references in the John chapter 1 here at lightning speed. But I hope this encourages you to dig further because there are many more in chapter 1 that we didn't go over. If you are of the mindset that the Bible is a haphazard collection of stories and you know, who knows and crammed together in a book you're wrong. John tells us from the very beginning that Jesus was foretold. He was the creator from, the, from the, the universe. And this story about Jesus is as foundational as the beginning itself. And what God was doing through his people, through what we call the Old Testament scriptures, was preparing them to the point where Jesus came to fulfill all of those promises. So I'd encourage you, read the Bible, read it with wonder, look for Jesus on every page. He is there in some way, shape, or form to see his identity, his mission, and his way. As I've been reading John 1 in preparation for this message, uh, I'm just again uh, amazed by how cohesive the Bible is. And also God's love, Jesus' love for us. Because especially in verse 11, he came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Like he went on purpose, on a mission, to rescue people and sacrifice himself for those who you would think would be the most to receive him, but they said no. He died and suffered for rebellious, stubborn people, and I think, wow, I'm so glad that he did that. I get to partake of that. Jesus, forgive me for my sin. You're you're amazing. So Jesus is the substitute that we all need. And his way, again, is a way of substitution. He offers to take your place in that line of destruction. We're all lined up to the line of destruction. And he taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, I'll take your place if you want. And not only do we get a substitution to get out of that line, we get in the line of glory and life and blessing and joy. But you have to make that choice. You have to choose to follow him because if you want to walk your own path, if you want to go your own way, if you want to ignore God, if you want to figure out life all on your own, maybe you just even put God as like a tack on, come to church for an hour on Sunday and nothing more, God will let you do that. He will allow you to live that way. Friends, Consider your own heart. Consider what pathway you are on because there's only two. There's your pathway and there's God's pathway. One leads to death, one leads to life. Philip said to his friend, Nathaniel, come and see. Come and see. If you're unsure about Jesus, unsure about what he's doing, come and see. Go to him. Ask him for help. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. Again, consider your own heart as we partake. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word that the Bible isn't a haphazard collection of stories, that you have sovereignly pulled it together for our benefit, that it is uh, not like a boring movie that just says, here's what it's about. It is full of wonder, intrigue, uh, certainly full of truth about you and, and who you are. And you've, you've given it to us to investigate and to look and uncover. It's like a, it's like a a safari. We're uncovering all kinds of great things all the time and learning and never able to plumb the full depths of the Bible. Help us all to see you more clearly in your word. Amen.